chapter 3, uh, verse 5. So we'll read this in its entirety here uh, to begin in just, just a second. But uh, just to catch you up to speed, if you haven't been here before, uh, this is, uh, like I said, one of uh, the two letters we have in the New Testament to the church in Thessalonica. So we started our series back in September looking at Acts 17, another place in the New Testament where it, it recounts this theological history of how Paul went to this city in the first place. He was called there by God to preach the gospel, and he was later driven out of the city uh, before he wanted to go. So in a kind of an untimely way, he was driven out by an angry mob incited by jealous Jews. We talked about that, how God still used suffering to birth a church and, and everything like that. So Paul's in a different city to the south now. So this is a Macedonian region. This is under Roman control in the first century, but basically northern Greece area. He's uh, another southern city called Corinth right now, and he's writing back to them. Uh, Athens area, actually, um, writing back to them now and sending this letter back with Timothy, which we're going to read about today, actually, the circumstances surrounding the sending of this letter uh, back, to, uh, back to them. So, but as we said a couple of weeks ago, uh, this is one of the places, so this passage in the last couple of weeks are uh, the, and a lot of people would say this, we would agree uh, here, that the, these sections of scripture of this very letter tell us more and reveal more about Paul's heart than anything else in the, in the New Testament. And it says a lot, because you see a lot of Paul's heart for his churches. He loves them, how he misses them, how his heart breaks, how he's worried about them. He's, he has anxiety over, are they still in the faith? Are they being tempted out of it? We're going to read some of these things today here uh, as well. But some of these things he says about giving his very life over to them and being like, he calls himself like a nursing mother to them in his gentleness to them. And like a loving, exhortative father in his, uh, in his loving, uh, truth-filled challenge to them to walk in a manner upright and in a way, in, in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been, they've been called and how he's been, been, again, gentle, not a burden-filled ministry uh, towards them, not, not a heavy yoke around their neck, but one that's full of, uh, full of peace and full of grace and full of love. So we're seeing that spill over into today's passage as well. Spencer preached on uh, some things last week uh, as well. But a little bit of context there for what's been happening. Just remember that he's thankful. He loves this church. He's thankful for God and how he's been working in, the, in their midst, not just saving them from their sins, but allowing them to live in a certain way. And as Mark said earlier, <clears throat> and as we've been saying, to suffer well. Uh, their suffering, as he's going to continue to pound home today, shouldn't be a shock to them, and it shouldn't be a shock to us when as Christians we suffer. Uh, it shouldn't be completely out of left field. It could, it could catch us off guard, but it shouldn't, in general, shock us. Christians suffer, churches suffer, because we resemble and imitate Christ in his suffering. It's like that last song, uh, Mark, and I like how Mark tied it together there, too. Our suffering should ultimately reference Christ's. Our suffering should image his. And so a lot of times our suffering will be redemptive for us. It will, it will point us to the cross. It will remind us what God did for us to save us. And it will be, as we suffer joyfully, a demonstration of that gospel to others who are watching us suffer joyfully as well. Some of you have done that. Some of you are in that now. Some of you might be thinking about people that you've seen suffer really well and going through all kinds of really difficult things as Christians, but having this strange, otherworldly joy as they go through it. That's a gift from God. That's, a res that's what Christ was like when he went to the cross. He, he was burdened with it. He, he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me, and yet he had, the Bible says, joy before him as he went to the cross as, as well. So that's all in context here, kind of set up today's, today's passage. We're continuing to hear Paul's heart, his thankfulness for this church, and he's going to continue to kind of gush 
over these people and, um, and talk about basically how he's wanted to come to see them, but he's been prevented from coming by Satan. And how he's, he's going to send Timothy to go and bring this letter and, um, and encourage their faith. And so that's just a little bit of a synopsis, but we'll read some more details here now. So we'll start in verse 17 in chapter 2. If you want to follow on screen, that's great. Or pull out that insert inside your worship folders or Bibles and um, follow along. Verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one might be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. All right, so uh, three, I basically have three takeaways today. There's some things here that we're not going to focus on because they're a little bit repetitive from prior weeks. So, but if you're uh, brand new here, he again talks about suffering and suffering well, how it not, should not be a shock to us. And if that's something you'd like to learn more about, invite you to talk to us or uh, go ahead and podcast or uh, re revisit the uh, sermons online on our website if you'd like a little bit more on that. But uh, three additional things here that we're learning uh, again, and this is all contextual stuff. This is what I love about this stuff, and you could look at any uh, book in the New Testament, is that this is, this is real. This is history. Paul's a real guy. The Thessalonians are real people. This is a real city, a real church, and just like us. And, th and they're real people, real sinners being saved by the same grace of God that we are. That we have the same enemy, Satan, who is hindering us in different ways as well. And so when God works in history... He's basically saying in the subtext, I am working in the same way in your midst. This matters. This is some guy's dream, some guy's ideas, some guy's private dreams about God. It's not going to matter as much, right? It's, it's, not, it's, it's private. It's kind of segmented away from us. But if this is history, this is real city, real people, real church, real gospel, real God, real grace, real life transformation, real enemy, real war, and if it's time transcendent and culture transcendent, then it matters. It means something to... Um, to us. So in context then, we learn from his life, not just his words, but his heart and his life and all these things that are going on, even just circumstantial things like I can't get to you when I want to get to you. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. All right, so the, the first thing, first takeaway is uh, that Satan, as we read about in verse 18, Satan seeks to hinder Christian community. Satan is against Christian friendship. Verses 17 and 18, let me uh, read this one more time to refresh your mind. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So a couple of things here on uh, Satan quick. Uh, Satan is a um, word that means accuser or backbiter. 
Uh, here it's a name for evil personified, basically the devil, uh, who was originally one of God's archangels on the same level as, if you're uh, familiar with Michael and Gabriel, other named angels in the Bible, but who at one point early on, we don't know all the details surrounding this, we can piece together some things from the scriptures, but at one point early on rebelled against God out of jealousy of his power. With other angels, he convinced fallen angels that we now call demons. But Satan, who appeared in the Garden of Eden in the beginning with, uh, with Adam and Eve, to Adam and Eve, as a serpent, and who convinced them to join his rebellion, essentially. He didn't call it that, but convinced them to join his rebellion against God. Uh, he was there, Satan was, there first, the, the, the initial, and he continues this ministry of sorts, but there the first relational separator separating God from people and people from people. His main, his main message was, you don't need God. You need yourself, over and over and over again. And, and it's, it's a lie that, that they believed and one we've all believed ever since. And it's a thought that earns us hell. But back in this passage and in context, back in Acts 17 actually, uh, when Paul went to this city for the first time and was driven away by the, the angry mob I talked about before, he was driven away from these people earlier than he wanted to. It was, a, it was an untimely exit uh, for him. And then he mentions here in this passage his desire to go back, but Satan not allowing it. Satan's not allowing him to go back. Again and again and again, he's trying to get back to this city, but Satan's not allowing it. And we don't know exactly what that meant. It was likely a very uh, circumstantial, not overtly spiritual, like, you know, an angel standing in the road with his arm out or something, say, you shall not pass or something, but something very circumstantial, like he's sick, or it's possible that the Thessalonians had a bit of a restraining order against him because he went to, to court, essentially, right, or the believers, at least in that city, were brought to court and before the city about what this new uh, found faith was all about and this uproar that was, that was being caused in the city. So whatever it was, maybe a combination of both, sickness or some legal thing, Paul was not able to go back, though he tried repeatedly to get uh, back to them. But, but these are things, circumstantial things that he calls demonic, right? Sickness. My sickness can't get me there. This legal thing with the city can't get me there. The, the enemy of our souls is behind that. He knew that because of how much God values the opposite. Christian community. And this is simple community too. I was talking with some guys this morning. I, for me, when I read this, I, I, I would tend to think that, and not that the enemy is not, the devil is not actively against these kinds of things too, but, but I would tend to think that this would be in context with maybe him stopping Paul from getting to Thessalonica for the first time and bringing the gospel there for the first time, preaching the gospel for the first time, seeing converts, seeing a church raised up, I would tend to think that that would be the thing that the enemy would be more inclined uh, to, to seek to counter. And he probably was, he just didn't succeed. But that's not what's said here. What's he preventing here? Christians hanging out over a cup of coffee, encouraging one another's faith. That's what the devil hates. That's what he's against. This is simple community here. This would be like us, you know, saying uh, Satan hindered Pastor Spencer from going to hang out with some believers from Hiawatha on Friday night around a campfire. Satan was actively against that occurring. He hates it. He hates what comes of it. So it's simple community. Now, on one level, this is, I think, a passive thing. It just happens. Uh, Paul, uh, there's an active side here we'll talk about in a second, but it just happens. It, like, like it just happened to Paul, we don't know why or what exact circumstance this was, 
why God allows this for a time, but it's something like Paul we need to acknowledge. We need to pray over and combat. Paul says here, uh, I like this phrase that he uses. He says, when we could bear it no more. So he's trying and trying and trying to get to this church, these people he loved and he missed and he liked and he was friends with and he wanted to encourage. He tried, and when he could bear it no more, he made concessions and sent Timothy, his associate, his friend, who was with him in Thessalonica earlier on, but now they're in, they're in Athens. He's going to send Timothy back, uh, at least with uh, this letter, to encourage their faith. So he fought for community. He didn't give up. When there was hindrance between himself and other Christians, just hanging out, encouraging one another in their faith, being mutually encouraged, he fought for it. He fought for encouragement. He fought to be close to other Christians. And in this, he's a great example uh, for us. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider, speaking to Christians, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day, the day of Christ's return drawing near. So on one level, this is a passive thing, I think, that just happens. We don't know exactly why all the time. We just have to acknowledge that it's going on. We have to pray. We have to be, we have to be attuned to it spiritually. Pray against that type of thing happening and combat it like Paul did in persistence uh, with, com- with fighting for Christian friendship and, and community. That's the one side. On another level, though, which is, which is similar, what I love about the words he uses here is that it helps us understand our enemy a bit more, right? And relatedly, what some of his main tactics are in setting out to destroy us. And if you didn't know that, uh, he is. He, you have an enemy that is much stronger than you realize. The Bible calls him in one place a lion that's prowling around ready to tear the flesh off your bones. Yes, visceral. That's what he's like. He wants to kill you right now. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to take away your hope. He wants to bring you back to, the, to his side of rebellion against, against the, 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 the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And so it helps us understand his main tactics so that we can understand what's contrary to it, what's contrasting to it, and we can know what then God values and what we can fight for, continue to fight for like we were just just talking about. So it's basically the same thing that we say a lot here in just saying Christian community is good, but it's saying it from a different angle, from kind of this darker side of what Satan is trying to counter. So I have four things here that I'll just go through fairly quickly. So you can see through it, you can see it through this lens and understand the heart of God, the heart of Satan, and what we should really be striving for in the war we fight. The first thing is this. Uh, Satan does not want you to hang out with other Christians. He does not want Christian friendship for you. Satan has likely been the source uh, one or more times in your life of preventing you from being with other believers like a community group. Whether you got sick, whether you just were interested more in playing video games or watching a football game, or you're just too busy, he's likely been behind that a lot more than, than you realize. Circumstantial things that you might not tend to just by default spiritualize, but he's likely been the author of these things that have kept you away from being face-to-face with other believers for the encouragement of your faith. Now, uh, one disclaimer here before we go on, uh, and this is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very fine line to ride, and, and the disclaimer is this. It, this does not mean we need to over-spiritualize 
every instance like this or label being alone as evil all the time or anything like that, but the equal and opposite error that, that or would be to assume that demons have no role in this stuff whatsoever. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a famous quote that I, I'll just paraphrase, but he says that there are two equal and opposite errors when it comes to talking about and thinking about the demonic realm. One is to overemphasize it, and one is to underemphasize it. So we have to find this middle ground of how, well, how, how do the biblical authors talk about Satan's work in the world in the context of real-life simple stuff, like church and community and friendship? This isn't radical things that only a few Christians experience. Who doesn't experience Christian friendship or community, right, or church? Satan is at work in the world to prevent these types of things that are just real-time, real-life, real-simple, real-relational uh, things. And so we've got to find, though, to, to recite that disclaimer one more time, is that middle ground of not looking for that demon behind every bush, so to speak, like you may have heard before, but still not, not under-emphasizing the fact that Satan is a real fallen angel, a real being who hates you hates you, and is actively trying to kill you every single second of your life. All right, so that's the, that's the first thing, is Satan does not want you to hang out with other Christians. He doesn't want Christian friendship for you. Secondly, and relatedly, just a little more broad, is Satan wants you to be a churchless Christian. Satan wants you to be a churchless Christian. He has likely kept you home from church even when you wanted to be here. Many, many more times than maybe you realize, or wherever your home church uh, is. Or maybe he has convinced some of you that church is not necessary for believers. So maybe part of this is that there, there are lies that you've been not just tempted to believe, but you've, you've bought into, that church is not that big a deal. Hanging out with Christians is not, it's good and just not necessary. It's a lie. But something is likely whispering to you uh, in, the, in, in either now or has or will or the quiet times or just loud times even of your life, something that you've bought into that is simply not, not true. Or maybe uh, another, another angle on this is busyness. In our culture, I think, man, that's just, that, that's a thing that isn't always bad, uh, but a lot of times it is. It, it is. Let me just say it this way. It is not God's will that you be so busy that you have little time for Christian community. It is not God's will that you be so busy that you have little time for Christian community. That is Satan's will. That's what he'd love. He'd love to keep, he's, he loves to keep us busy that we have no time for community groups or no time for church on Sunday mornings, no time for hanging out with Christians, to be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, as Romans 1.12 says. Remember, Paul wants that all the time in his letters. Again, that Romans 1.12, different letter, different city, different context, but Paul says, I want to be with you so we might be just mutually encouraged by one another's faith. Satan opposes it. Satan hates it. Satan doesn't want it because he knows what comes of it. He knows perseverance in the faith, joy, fame to Christ comes from those types of simple, day-to-day, rhythmic meetings with, uh, with other believers. So it might be busyness. Uh, still the second thing. The, the third thing, though, is, uh, and this is, again, related, but more on the leadership side of things, is Satan does not want you to be encouraged by Christian leaders. Remember, Paul is a leader. Timothy's a leader who goes to, to encourage other Christians in their faith. Satan's opposing this type of thing, so he's opposing preaching. Uh, re-evangelizing of believers, Christian counseling, exhortation, things like that. Satan does not want, uh, to those of you who are uh, elders here, or um, specifically, or who will be, Satan does not want pastors to preach the gospel to the church. 
I heard someone say the other day that every time the gospel's preached, every time it's received, and at least entertained, uh, war is waged against the kingdom of darkness. He hates it. It's, it's the biggest swipe of a sword against the neck of the dragon that you can make is to talk about the fame of Christ and that he, he loves you. He's alive. He died for your sins. He's stronger than evil. He's overwhelmed death. That belief is the point, not being a good person. That, that, that is, and that you need God. Remember, remember that at the heart of all of Satan's lies and temptations is you don't need God or anybody else. You can have some friends as long as they're there for you. You really don't need anybody. But at the heart of that is you don't need God because everybody includes God. Right? So it spills over into the horizontal, the interpersonal, but it, it's first and foremost on the vertical between us and, and the divine and God. We need him to be saved. We don't need ourselves and our awesomeness and our goodness and our religion and our ladder-climbing efforts to get to heaven. We need God to do something to make the impossible possible. Can we all make dead people live? Who's done that? Only Christ, right? And Christ does it for, for people like Lazarus and, and, and the other people he raises from the dead in his ministry physically. He does it spiritually for all of us through faith. Only God makes the impossible possible. Only God can save people, which is an impossibility for, for us. So that's the third thing. And, and the fourth thing, just broadly, and I've kind of gone here already, but I'll just say it again. Satan wants you to think you're fine on your own. Again, remember, it's the lie from Genesis 3. You don't need God is closely related to the idea of you don't need other believers. So just to reaffirm that. Uh, this lie is, is, is likely alive and well in your heart and mind today. Where Even if we don't, wouldn't say that, backed into a corner, we wouldn't say that we believe that. It likely is uh, right now. So we have to actively rebut it. And not just in our mind, but, but proactively as we seek out Christian community and uh, relationships and friendships. We have to rebut it with, with the truth of the gospel, which is, again, the opposite of that. We need God and we need other Christians to help us persevere in the faith. All right, so that, that's the first thing today is Satan seeks to hinder Christian community on levels that maybe you hadn't thought before. Not on these big, grandiose, obvious levels of preaching and evangelism and conversion and church planning. Obviously, he's against that, but he also doesn't want you to have coffee with another believer. He hates it. And he's probably prevented that from happening more than once in your life, whether it's through sickness or some other circumstantial thing or a lie that you've bought into about the importance of community. And um, we need to combat that. So like Paul does here by being persistent and sending Timothy. All right. The second thing, second takeaway here is, I guess switching gears a little bit, is uh, looking at this narrative from a, kind of a 30,000-foot view here, a, a big-picture view, and looking at this gospel drama, I'm calling it, I'll explain that in a second, but this, this gospel drama in Paul's endeavor to see this church, to see them face-to-face. -face. And um, as we said before today, and I'll, um, I'll say it again, I really said this two weeks ago, but it's not just Paul's words but his heart for and his actions towards the Thessalonians that tell us about Jesus. In portions of letters like this, this is a great uh, tip for you as you read the Bible and portion, in sections of scripture like this elsewhere in the Bible that are a little more in narrative than, than prepositional, like straight up kind of letters, statements about the gospel, statements about Christ or whatever. That's a big piece to the letters. It's kind of like a, like a theology textbook in some ways. 
but there are portions of every letter that are narrative like this, that they just talk about people traveling from one city to another, going to see people, bringing jackets when it's wintertime, and going to bring scrolls and letters and pens so Paul can write letters and different things like that. These are portions of the scriptures that don't necessarily speak Christ explicitly, but demonstrate him and his saving work for us implicitly. So that was a big piece to two weeks ago. We're going to revisit that today on a little bit uh, broader of a scale. But if you weren't here two weeks ago, a couple examples that we saw were how Paul's gentleness imitated Christ's gentleness towards the Thessalonians. So when Paul was gentle, when Paul talked about himself as, a, as a, like a nursing mother to them, or when he said, uh, I'm not gonna be, I wasn't a burden to you, it, it imitated the fact that Christ wasn't a burden to us. Jesus says in his ministry, I didn't come, come here to put a heavy yoke of law-keeping around your neck. I came to be the means in myself of how you get to God. I'm the answer. I'm not showing you the answer. It's not over here like all the gurus and sages and religious head figures of history. He's saying, I am the way. I am the resurrection. I am the door. I am the bread. I am the life. I am the fountain. I am the answer of answers. It's me. Crazy people or sons of God talk that way. Not a good guy. Jesus wasn't a good guy. He was the son of God who was the answer to all of himself to all of our, all of our problems. And so, so in that then, Christ came to be a, a burden lifter. He, he didn't came, come to give us things to do so much as, as himself to believe in. And he said, be at peace, right? One of his main, main messages was don't fear anymore. Be at peace. Come, come and rest. If you're, if you're weak or weary or heavy laden, Come rest at my feet and I'll give you rest for your souls. I'll give you peace for your souls. So Paul says then, as we made those connections a few weeks ago, Paul resembles that. Christian ministry, as we preach a faithful gospel, it's about grace and not law. It's not burdening to people, but freeing. We resemble Christ, uh, the man and his, and his message. So, so a couple examples there of how we see Paul and his just his actions toward this church tell us about the, the nature of Christ and what the gospel is and what it isn't. So that was a couple of weeks ago, but in today's case, it's not just singular things like gentleness or not being a burden or being like a loving, exhortative father or things like that. It's not so much the minutia, although the, the minutia helps tell this story, but really it's the entire circumstance here, this whole passage basically, what's going on here. The entire circumstance surrounding his separation from them, his sending of Timothy, which is a really key part I'll talk about, to encourage their faith uh, after a time of Satan-incited separation. And maybe some of you guys noticed this as we read, but it's not always readily apparent until you dig a little bit deeper. But as we read these things, maybe some of you noticed that basically what's going on here between Paul and Timothy Satan, the, Thess the Thessalonians, this distance that's kind of overcome by Paul's associate really resembles the whole of the biblical storyline in a nutshell. This happens elsewhere too in the scriptures, but here most clearly actually. This is what I mean in the form of a graph here. So on the left side, in the Thessalonian context, Paul is hindered by Satan from seeing the Thessalonians, his people, his church, his sheep as a pastor. He endeavors to be close but can't. So he sends Timothy, his son, God's co-worker, it says in this passage, to bridge this gap, to encourage perseverance in the faith, and to establish it maybe in some. 
basically the same thing that's going on, greater redemptive historically. And on the right side, Satan has come in between God and us uh, by Satan inciting us to rebel against him. God endeavors to be close. He loves us deeply. So he sends Jesus, his son, the ultimate co-worker of God, to bridge the gap, to not just encourage perseverance, but to author our faith by dying for our sins. You see, the whisper here of redemptive history is alive in Paul's actions towards the Thessalonian church. And the circumstances, even after a time of Satan inside of separation, sending Timothy to go and, and encourage them in their faith. Really, if you didn't know, this story in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3 on the left is the story of the whole Bible in a nutshell. Maybe, again, a place you didn't expect to see the gospel, but certainly it is alive and well, as it is in every single nook and cranny of the scriptures. But, but here, here's the main point. If this is true, and it is, then this passage is just a picture of something better. It's a great picture, but just, just a picture. I don't know if you guys have ever taken a, a picture of something like on a vacation, like even this fall, trying to capture uh, the, the fall foliage on your camera, and then you might post it or something and say, oh, it, this picture doesn't do it justice. You know, or the color doesn't come out or something like that, or no filter helps this one or something like that. Uh, that that's, that's the reality is so much better. If you ever thought that, it's the same here. Paul's desire to be close to the Thessalonians is great, but muted. It, it doesn't capture the true color of God's love for us. For that, we have to go elsewhere. And this is what the gospel says. If we use these words, this vocabulary, to capture what happened in the greater redemptive historical, the greater biblical storyline drama, which we're all a part of, then we say this. This is what the gospel is. God endeavored eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. When you were separated from him by Satan and your sin for a time, he didn't give up. He persevered. He fought to be near you. He fought to be with you. And when he was separated from you by your sin and your rebellion, he sent his son Jesus, the ultimate Timothy, to establish you in your faith, to fight for that community, to fight for that closeness, and to grow you up in his gospel and love and, and peace. Again, even at the expense, what I, what I love about this too, which I kind of got at in the, in the graph, but in case you didn't see this, even at the expense of his son, this would have cost Paul something, right? Paul said, I didn't want to send Timothy. I didn't want to be alone. It's costing him loneliness, right? And a friend and an associate to send Timothy to go and encourage faith here. In the same way, it cost God something to save you. It cost God something to undo that Satan incited separation between you and him. It cost him the life of his son. It cost him the ultimate Timothy, the ultimate God's co-worker. Isn't it interesting, too, that Timothy is called God's co-worker? What? I think that's a whisper of Christ here again, too, that, that Paul is alluding to in his writings, whether he's meaning this or speaking beyond himself in, in the Holy Spirit. But that's the gospel. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his only son, but, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us and bless us with all things? So, but, but look at that first part. He who did not spare his own son. This is, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3 is a muted, kind of not so great colored version of the reality. Romans 8 is the reality. Ephesians 2 is the reality. But now... 
Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, here's the Satan-incited separation idea, you who were once not where God is, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once not where God is, you were far off. You were in Thessalonica, and God is in Athens. He has brought you near now by the ultimate ministry of the ultimate Timothy, by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the full, in-person viewing of the Mississippi River Gorge in the, at, at the peak color without, without a camera in hand because you're right there and you're viewing it. This is the story of the gospel. And, and what's beautiful, additionally, about that is what the gospel is is a picture of God's heart. This is why we, we go back to this stuff all the time, why the Bible does is the core of the gospel is really looking at who God is. Not, not so much who we are. We're just in this city, not, we're, we're, just, we're separated from God, but the core of the gospel says God endeavored. The core of the gospel says when God could bear it no more, he sent out to save you. The core of the gospel is God loves you. The core of the gospel is God, it cost God his own life and the life of his son. It cost him something to save, save us. So it's focused on him. Right, and what he does for us, not on us and what we, what we, do, what we do for him. What he does for us, not, not on us and what we do for him. No talk of the Thessalonians' righteousness here. Does Paul say, if you behave, I will come? Does Paul say, if you keep these laws, then I think maybe I'll go? Is that even close to what he's saying? Not even close, right? Where's talk of their righteousness, of their goodness? He just has unconditional love for them. In the same way, so does God. Does God say to us, behave, then I'll save? No. He says, I love you, and I'm going to come and die in your place. I'm going to give my life, I'm going to bleed on a cross for you and give my life substitutionarily for you. It's exactly what's going on here, just not a muted version. It's the true full-color version. God loves you. He saved you from your sins, you guys. That's what this is about. He's, he's, he's saying to us, I save you by grace, not by works. That's what this is about. Like everything else in the Bible, that's what this is about. I save you by grace, not by, by, by love, not by your works of righteousness. And third then, and kind of spilling over from that, one uh, last thing here, look at this last verse is the idea of uh, what's Paul's main concern here. And what should a Christian's one ultimate concern be? Verse 5 says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter, this is Satan again, the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Christians that kind of looked Christian for a while that would be tempted away from the true faith, that the church would kind of dissolve, that's what he's fearing here. So, at the core, then, of his concern, this is why he wants to go, this is why he sends Timothy, at the core of his concern is the perseverance, the ongoing nature of their faith, even amidst suffering. That's the center of his prayer and his concern. Uh, kind of on a, and maybe you picked up on this as well, but on an interesting side note, note that he doesn't pray that suffering be removed. He's not also going to seek to remove their suffering. He's actually saying, you shouldn't be surprised, right? This is our destiny. He uses the word destiny. It's our destiny that we suffer. It's your destiny 
as Christians that you suffer in this life. To varying degrees, we are destined because we are in the suffering son. We are in the Christ, and he suffered. And the drama of his suffering is going to be lived out in ours, the church. And so he, he actually says, don't be surprised. But rather, what he really wants, what he's really praying, is that their faith would endure. Uh, Tim Keller says that, it, it, in all, uh, this is from a, his book on prayer. I don't think I put this on screen, so just hang with me here. Tim Keller says, it is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. In all the New Testament prayers, and all of Paul's prayers for his churches, there's no appeals for changes in their circumstances. Paul never says, I'm praying your suffering would stop. Never. What he does pray is, I pray your faith would endure through it. Whether you're extremely happy and full of joy and full of peace and comfort, or whether you're on the brink of death, my ultimate concern, suffering and persecution, my ultimate concern is that you don't give up on Christ, that you cling to him. Because that will be the temptation, the tempter, I love that he uses the word tempter, the ultimate temptation is that you stop clinging to Christ, that you, that you give up on him being your ultimate life preserver in the midst of the stormy sea. That's what he's worried about. That's the ultimate temptation. More than a temptation to sexual sin or to deceitfulness or a place of pride, it's a temptation to stop trusting alone in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, of your sins. And so what, what we then extrapolate from this as Christians and as we think about Hiawatha as, as our home and think about leadership, and what we extrapolate from this is, I think, to share and this concern for our and others' perseverance, and to not let your concern to be alleviated from suffering outweigh your concern for your perseverance in your faith, and for others. And part of that, I think, looks like how you pray. Is the majority of your prayers that your, your suffering would go away, or is the majority of your prayers that I would make God famous and love him and trust him in the midst of suffering? Deeply convicting, Right? I mean, honestly, search your heart. Think about this last week even. What was most of your prayers, God, please give me something? Please provide, please heal? Or is the majority of your prayers, God, help me to keep believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you ever prayed that? When you think about praying for Hiawatha Church, do you pray, God, help everybody at Hiawatha keep believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or do you primarily pray for next month's rent or relief from chronic migraines? It's fine, but... What's better and what's more biblical is to pray gospel themes over at your church. Please join us in this, you guys. I'm actually begging <laughs> that you join Spencer and I in this endeavor. We need prayers to happen that are more gospel-centered, more God-focused, rather than more us-focused. Rather than more comfort-focused, we need prayers that appeal to God for destruction of the tempter, who, who's more concerned, the tempter is, more concerned about you losing your faith than anything else. You might think he's behind, and he might be behind other things too, but what he's actively against, what he's prowling around to devour is us and, and our faith. And so then, as, uh, and I'll, I'll speak for Spence here and Jesse and Chris Thompson, our, our eldership here, our pastors. And uh, he, Hebrews 12.5 says this too, that the idea of making sure that all obtain the grace of God I, you know, I was reading this as a pastor, and I'm thinking, this is indicative of where our concern is for you all, and for sure ours too. Uh, we wouldn't say this is, um, that we're exempt from this by any stretch. 
but still, Paul, Paul's concern here is reflective of, of our concern in that it's not that we don't care about your physical suffering, because we really do, and we will pray for that. If you put that on your blue cards, we'll certainly pray for that. Uh, but what we really worry about uh, for you guys is you're losing your trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, or you doubting his goodness, or you being lured back to the comfort of sin rather than prodding on to the land of salvation. Or you starting to believe in yourself more than him, that you're a good person in need of a makeover rather than a dead person in need of resurrection. We really worry about that. Or about just a prayerless, passionless, selfish version of the true form of Christianity. That's what gives us anxiety in our own hearts and as we think about you all. I think by God's grace, we look at us corporately and we don't necessarily see that. I'm not saying that's for sure here. I'm just saying that's like Paul is just saying that's what, we're, that's what we don't want. That's what we know the enemy's trying to create in all of our hearts as a community. And part of our just gig, our job, our prayers as pastors is to be more concerned about that than anything else going on in, in your life. And that should be your concern and mine every day. And, and I think what helps us with this, it, it's not so much trying harder, but being reminded of who God is and what the true nature of salvation really is. Like, like a, a father's love for his son or daughter is, is reinforced in the son or daughter, not through the doing of chores, but through telling him that he loves him. Right? And so we need to be reminded of the nature of, of, of the Christ the fatherly love of the Lord, that, that's what helps us go on rather than the, just the kind of vague notion of, of trying hard, although it will look like work to believe uh, at, at times as well. Two quick things here in conclusion, uh, and I think there's really just two things here ultimately. Uh, and I'll, I'll go back to that idea of taking pictures and seeing realities. Uh, so the first is, the exciting thing is here, this is actually, I think, a beautiful thing to see Paul's love for this church and say that's a picture of God's love for us but what's even more exciting and applicable on top of that is that that's something we can do as well with our lives we can take pictures of the gospel and display them to ourselves and others even though they're muted in color even though they're two-dimensional they're not perfect we can still do that we, we can overcome separation in other words between ourselves and other believers you can work to do that. You can, you can free your schedule up a bit more to have more robust Christian friendships here, to join a community group. You're, you're not so busy where things have to kind of come in between you and other people, uh, maybe seasonally for a time, but if that's keeping, like Paul, if it's keeping you again and again and again from seeing Christians, there's something demonic behind that. There just is. There's something deeply, wrongly, in the wrong way, spiritual about that prevention of keeping you away from the church, where, which is where Christ is. Actually, that's a maxim here, too, of, uh, which I'll say is, meeting with believers, it's inextricably connected to meeting with Jesus Christ. You can't really meet with Jesus apart from other believers. Because church is where you go, formal or informal, big or small, is, is where you go to meet with Jesus and to hear from him and to see him. So as we take these pictures and as, as we battle the lies that, that, you're likely, that we're likely hearing on, on this matter, we image and take pictures of and display 
in the art gallery of the church, so to speak, we, we display pictures of how God ventured and endeavored to save us. And that's the second thing, and the more important thing, is to then, and as you're doing this, gaze even more at the reality. Believe the gospel. Like, like Timothy got by the satanic hindrance. Did you notice that? Paul's hindered by Satan. Timothy just got by. That's how easy it was for Christ. Christ got by the satanic hindrance. He destroyed it. No more separation between you and God. Like Timothy got by the satanic hindrance, so does Jesus. He destroyed Satan. He destroyed the act of rebellion against him that we all have to be with us, to ensure community with us, to be close to us when he could bear it no longer because he loved us. Do you guys think that this is God's heart or just Paul's? Is Paul more loving than God? Does Paul have more of a desire to be with us or with his church than God does to us? We can't affirm that. This is a glimpse of Christ. He loves you even more than this. He endeavored to be with you. He is endeavoring currently to be close to you. When he could bear it no longer. This is like romance stuff here. This is the drama of marriage. This is a man's love for his wife and swimming oceans to be with her kind of thing. This is what God is like. Not an angry judge, though he is a judge and though he has anger over sin. His love uh, comes through his desire for justice to seek out mercy and to seek out marriage and to seek out love for his people. So that's love. When we look at this, that's love and power together. From your God, against Satan and sin, and for you and me. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for the gospel uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to 3, 5 where we not just glean a spiritual principle, but we get a glimpse of the drama of, of redemptive history, the whole biblical storyline in its entirety. We're reminded that you came to us. You sent your son, the ultimate co-worker of God, Jesus Christ, to be with us, to somehow cross that chasm, to bridge that gulf, to be with us by dying for our sins, by destroying the tempter, by destroying the snake, by destroying the dragon, by destroying the adversary, by destroying the accuser, by destroying the Satan. You did that for us. Thank you so much for your grace and love and power. God, help us to believe in that more than ourselves. Even now as I say this, I'm sure the enemy is lying to many of us, saying, yeah, it's pretty good, but you also need to be a good person. God, in the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke that lie. I call that out because your scriptures do. It is a lie from the pit of hell that we have to be something before you when you say, I just love you as you are. Help us to come to the cross messy, uh, full of hope and full of faith, but that's it. Just full of dependence on you, that you will take away our sin. You will forgive us even though we've actively rebelled against you like the enemy of our souls has. We've joined his team. Throughout our whole life, we've been on the team of the devil, actively rebelling against you by just believing we don't need you that much. And relatedly, we don't need Christian community that much either. God, forgive us that sin of individualism and help us to battle uh, that to, uh, through uh, gospel-centered thoughts like we do need you. We need the cross and we need the church uh, to encourage us uh, in, in our faith and help us to live accordingly. Thank you so much for your love and grace that forgives and saves. Help us to respond now in song. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.